Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Open Floor. I'm Andrew Sharp, and on the other line, from the Washington Post, Ben Golliver. What's up, man? Not too much, Andrew. You know, last week we talked about the least watchable stars of all time, and I don't want to relitigate that conversation because I think we we pretty much covered it. But one thing mm-hmm. left me with a slightly bad taste in my mouth, right? Because we, we mentioned Tim Duncan. I actually think we got to a pretty good compromise where you were essentially pointing out Look, during his actual prime, their teams were such a tough watch that he wasn't the, the most watchable guy. But then yeah. later in his career, they were a little bit more entertaining. The style of play came around, and it was easier to appreciate him. And I kind of just threw this out as a morsel during that conversation, something along the lines of, I look at him as you know more than just a player. He's kind of a figurehead or an icon of that franchise, and there's all these different things that he stands for. And that just yeah. got me going down this little brainstorm rabbit hole this afternoon. And so I'm going to pose a question to you, and I, I want to hear w- what you think on this, okay? Okay. Um, if given the opportunity, would LeBron James trade careers with Tim Duncan? Now, the reflexive answer is going to be no, LeBron's number two all time and all of that. But I'm not asking you who's the better player, right? I know exactly what you're asking. I'm saying but... who has the better career, who has the greater career. And I'm also and I'm kind of curious because of this reason. If you took Tim Duncan's accomplishments, you know, the 18 years, whatever, with a single franchise, the five rings, multiple extra finals appearances, uh, you know, everything else that he stands for, but you mixed it with LeBron's fame and his watchability. So you just drop LeBron in Cleveland instead of just that one amazing 2016 title. Now you've got five titles in Cleveland. You've got him elevating all these other players around him, role players, uh, you know, all of a sudden look like superstars and are part of championship teams. Would that help him? in the GOAT debate against Jordan? Like, wouldn't he become this modern era Bill Russell, but also mixed in with a little bit of the, uh, you know, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar longevity factor? Like, would LeBron be the GOAT if he had Tim Duncan's career mixed with his own marketing and, I guess, you know, uh, watchability? What do you think? Um, It's a good question. I think you're sort of taking a cop out here. I think that the question is more interesting if LeBron has to forsake some of the fame that he has accrued along the way because of the choices he's made over the course of his career, which have helped him become the biggest star on the planet. The better question is, does LeBron want to go spend 15 or 16 years in San Antonio win five titles, but be less famous. That's what okay. I thought you were setting yeah, up yeah. for. Like, it basically like a is. Like King Arthur's sword situation. What I'm, yeah, what I'm sort of saying is let's not put him in San Antonio. Let's let him sort of have that basic element of he stays in Cleveland. So let's say he played his career out, got five rings like Duncan did, never left, You know, didn't do the heatles, so he wasn't as famous. He never took that step, but he sort of built up that franchise as sort of the ultimate winning franchise of the post-Jordan era where old guys got so excited about how he represents playing the right way. And maybe he sacrificed a little bit statistically, so he didn't quite have uh, you know, the same numbers that he has currently, but it led directly to five rings. And now you're looking at this argument where he's, you know, practically spent two decades there. He's synonymous with that organization. You know, even his coach and his GM are revered because of what a stable presence he's been. If all that took place in Cleveland, he just never left. He never did this late career thing in LA. Don't you think his case against Mike is better? 
There's no question it is. But that's why you're making the question half as interesting as it could be. Because, of it, like, look, the scenario that you've laid out here, LeBron would make that choice in a heartbeat because he just has a flat out better career in that scenario. And I get, I mean, I guess okay, you're so, saying, all right, so he has to stay in Ohio and he doesn't get to go live in South beach and live in LA, which is a sacrifice. But I mean, the way you've explained it and, and the terms that we're working with here, like he is, he's, he's already close to being at a spot where people are ready to call him, the most well-rounded player of all time and the best player of all time. Like if he had won a title in LA this year, people would have been ready to take that leap. And that may still happen over the next few years if he can find a way to pull it together. So So, I I like that point you said. So his career would definitely be better under this scenario, his overall career, right? Maybe not his fame, but his career. Now, if you flip it, would Duncan take LeBron's career, right? Would he prefer to be more famous, have got to do all these other things, be in these movies, get to be the face of Space Jam 2, and all these other things that LeBron has done? Or would he chill with his own career? I'm tempted to say that Tim Duncan would chill with his own career. So now I ask you the incendiary question, who actually had a better career, Tim Duncan or LeBron James? If Duncan won't trade careers with LeBron, and LeBron might consider trading careers with Duncan... Did Duncan have the better career? <laughs> I don't know. You're tying my brain in pretzels here. I don't think Duncan had a better career than LeBron. I do agree that Duncan is perfectly content with exactly the way his career played out. But that speaks to Duncan more than it does. That, that doesn't really say anything about what LeBron has or hasn't accomplished. Duncan in San Antonio was just a perfect marriage, and it was one of the best marriages of superstar and situation that we've seen in like 75 years of NBA history. So I don't disagree that he wouldn't choose LeBron's career, but I I think we might be overstating what that means. Okay, fair enough. I just wanted to get you to say those words because what you just said beautifully encapsulates the importance of Tim Duncan in this NBA universe. And saying that he was boring in 2006 doesn't really do it. We've got a lot of young listeners like that great uh, Lantern uh, segment correspondent from last week who's like 14, 15 years old. I want those guys to hear the truth about Tim Duncan. You laid it out brilliantly. I do think it's a fascinating question, though, because let's say LeBron's stats were a little bit lower. You know, instead of Uh like the crazy 25, 26, 8, and 8, I mean, maybe he's only averaging for his career like 21, 6, and 6, but he's got the five rings. Would the old school people rally around him because, you know, there wouldn't be that tension between, oh, he's like a, a team first player, but maybe not the team first personality. Like right now, we've got a little tension there. Um, yeah. And that tension never existed with Duncan, right? He was the team first player on the court and the team first guy off the court. Uh, I wonder, you know, obviously Duncan's never going to get into that conversation because he doesn't win the hearts and minds that guys like LeBron and and Mike do. But I do wonder if you could like rerun the LeBron scenario and and give him some of Duncan's, uh, you know, best qualities, whether guys like me would actually be coming around and saying, you know what, we got to give LeBron a a real look here. It's not just Mike, you know, 100 times out of 100. Yeah, well... And the, the other hypothetical that I was mentioning, the King Arthur sword situation, it's like the moment of truth for LeBron. How badly do you want to win titles? Or are you willing to trade half of this other shit, the Space Jam 2 stuff, the endorsements, the international fame to just go win five titles in the monastery? And the answer there is probably no, because LeBron likes being famous. So that's part of what makes him so interesting is that he does have all these 
competing motivations. Um, but I think at the end of the day, he's happy with the way his career has played out as well. I think you're even right. Even in LA, I think even in LA, he doesn't necessarily look back at the last year and say, wow, I made the wrong choice. Can I tell you one thing to, to tack onto that, Andrew, that's got me a little bit nervous? What? You know how LeBron always does this young king thing? Everybody on Instagram's a young king to LeBron. does. If you're a basketball player with any level of talent between the ages of 12 and, and like 29, you're a young king to LeBron. I think he's planting a lot of seeds for that late career title gravy train. Don't you think? Like after this Lakers deal is over, if he needs to kind of close that gap a little bit, well, can't he go play with Ben Simmons' super team or Kyrie's super Mm. team or some of these other young Kings super teams? And then he can just spin it like, look, I've been mentoring this guy for the last 10 years. You know, we have a great relationship. I'm just trying to go there and and chip in any way I can and and maybe take some of the heat that he might get from like the Carl Malone Lakers era, you know, backlash. Like maybe he would be able to avoid that by uh, some of his prep work that he's doing right now. What do you think? Um, I think it's possible, but I also wonder about that side of the story with LeBron because one of the things that I find really interesting is that he doesn't seem to resonate among young players the way Kobe did when Kobe was at this point in his career. And and I don't know why necessarily, and I don't know – I mean, I, I don't think people have any sort of ill will toward LeBron – but they don't have that kind of reverence for him the way like an entire generation, 10 or 15 years worth of basketball players had for Kobe. And um, so I don't know necessarily. So those guys didn't want to go play with Kobe when push came to shove though, right? Like there was a bunch of free agents who didn't even really give the Lakers a look during, you know, Kobe's late career. And the same thing is seemingly happening to LeBron right now. I wonder if the equation changes though, because LeBron's already changed teams however many times. Like no one's going to really be surprised if he does it again later in his career. I mean, if he's, you know, your your fifth starter you know, at that stage of his career, or if he's your sixth man coming off the bench and, and you know, just trying to rack up that ring, does, uh, you know, the lack of reverence or just like the respect factor, because I do think LeBron's got respect, if not the same Kobe-like reverence. Um, right. I wonder if that would pull through though. Yeah, well, and the other thing is, if LeBron is able to evolve and kind of like tone down his ball dominance, like there are elements of his game that should age really, really well as he hits his late 30s and even 40. Like he could probably play and be really effective until his early 40s if he wanted to, um, which wasn't as true for someone like Kobe because Kobe just wasn't going to be able to adapt. And um, and so it like theoretically everything that you're describing is possible but i will believe it when i see it in terms of people kind of handing the keys to lebron or even like allowing him on the bandwagon of a contender that already exists but um but we'll see you know we will see and we accomplished my main goal i just wanted to get this idea that tim duncan's career belongs among you know the greatest careers in nba history that's how we should be referencing him (laughs) Not this boring goon who ruined the 2000s with his his, uh, defense first style. Um, I'm glad I got that off my chest. I know you've got a whole laundry list of things you want us to talk about. I'm pretty sure over-unders is on that list, right? We do have over-unders on the list. Um, And yeah, you know what? It's the end of the season. The playoffs are right around the corner. So it's only right that we would start off the podcast with some elaborate Tim Duncan fan fiction from you. 
And I well, it is for, that time of year. I mean, we, we <laughs> doesn't have to be fan fiction, Andrew. This could be a Ken Burns documentary. I mean, I don't know how many episodes did he get from the Civil War. I mean, it was like what five or six like extended episodes. Tim Duncan's career, he could probably get eight, nine episodes just from his playoff exploits alone. Yeah, that's another career for you. You can record the most boring podcast in history. Once you get fed <laughs> up with covering current events in the NBA, you could do a 10-part Tim Duncan documentary. Can you it's see- funny. You said at the top, uh, Tim Duncan was an icon in San Antonio. And you know what I pictured? Have you ever seen the religious icons? I think they might be Russian, but they're painted with like, gold leaf and some people keep them in their houses my grandmother keeps them in her house oh i've got one above my toilet yes of, of duncan it's when he's you know kind of doing that <laughs> that amazing fadeaway over uh sergi baka the rickety shot to win the western conference finals what, what year was that 2014 yeah it's gold leaf it's beautiful it, it i had to clean my whole 401k out to actually you know commission it but the guy yeah. did a great job i love it there you go. I, what's sad is I don't even know whether you're joking. I don't even want to know. Um, but with that, then let's move on to the questions. We've got an interview, a rare interview at the end of this podcast, talking to my friend Amos Barshad. But for now, let's run through 45 minutes of mailbag at the end of the season here. First question, Abdul says, So I am looking back at preseason over-unders Andrew called a Sixers under at 54 and a half, which was a good pick for him. He also said that the Celtics were a bet your mortgage over on 57 and a half. Who could forget? That's another story. Yes. If you, if you bet your mortgage on the Celtics over your house is currently on fire. I apologize. Um, the Pacers managed to pass nearly pass. He says, their line of 47 and a half, even with Oladipo missing half the season. I think the most surprising performance, though, would be the Atlanta Hawks at 29, maybe 30 wins after a line of 23 and a half wins to begin the season. So, Ben, I have pasted a chart of over-unders into our yeah. rundown. Great radio. What? Should we just read it cell by cell? I mean, this will be fantastic. No, I'm kidding. We could. Well, in the interest of full disclosure and also patting myself on the back, I went back to see my own preseason uh, column that I wrote on this topic. I'm going to give you the five that I picked, okay? Mm-hmm. Uh, Lakers under 48.5. Obviously, that one was correct. Bucks over 46.5. Obviously, that one was correct. I had Jazz over 48.5. You were giving me some grief about that. They just barely squeaked by. I think they're at 49 right now. That one was correct. I had Pacers under 47.5. And honestly, that was like my Celtics pick. Like I was so confident that they were going to go significantly under that line um, just because of Oladipo coming back to earth. Right now, they're at 47. So that one actually will have to be settled with their game against the Hawks uh, on Wednesday night. They have nothing to play for. So who knows how that one will go. And then the one that I got wrong uh, was Warriors over 62.5. I showed too much faith in Steph Curry kind of coming back and, you know, staying healthy the whole way and just, you know, blitzing everybody off the court. Uh, basically, I thought that they would care about basketball more than they did this season as a whole. And they basically yep. turned in a complete sequel of last year. So they went under burning me for the second year in a row. So right now I was 3-1 and then 1-2 be determined. Um but I wish people had just bet the Bucks over and the Lakers under because we would all have gold leaf Tim Duncan posters right now to celebrate with. <laughs> the Bucks over is one that seemed so obvious to me. And I think it, 
is probably because we both are just biased um, and really believed hey. in what Giannis was going to be able to do this weekend. Speak for or, yourself. No, this year. <laughs> um, yeah, well, he was just incredible. Um, and it, But it, it seemed like that was where things were headed regardless. I don't think anyone would have picked 60. It is amazing given how sideways this Celtics season has gone that 58.5 was their number preseason. Like, that just... Or 59 was the number that they closed that preseason. Like, holy crap, the Celtics have been a mess compared to what they were expected to be. No doubt about it. Um, I think the Bucks going over by so much, like even in their wildest dreams, I can't really foresee that, right? Like I was all in on Bud. I thought 50 was well within reach. I think I was daring to dream about 55, but they just got 60 the other night and they took it in stride. And the Bucks might be low-key cocky, Andrew. Like these guys are trying to brush off all of these accomplishments night in, night out. I don't know if you've been following the reporting on that, but like everybody went in the locker room and was all excited, expecting them to be like popping champagne for 60 wins. And it, they're just giving off this attitude. Like they just don't care at all. It's like, whatever, on to the next one. Um, I kind of like it. I think that speaks well for their focus level. I think it says something about Giannis's leadership ability too, and uh, his own ability to kind of, you know, focus on the next step. Uh, but yep. in terms of the Celtics disaster, um, I think I jokingly said that I was just going to bet the opposite of you when you said over just because I assumed that you would be wrong. Um, but I <laughs> I thought they were going to be a super team too. And clearly they did as well. And I think that's a big part of the story for their season is once yeah. they were underperforming kind of so early, don't you think they felt the weight of that basically the whole way? And it's like, even when they were winning three games in a row, they never really celebrated because it was like, well, you know, the other shoe is always just there preparing to drop. And when they did Absolutely. lose three games in a row, it was like, oh, God, like we're so good. We should never lose three games in a row. Every, you know, everyone's freaking out and losing their minds. I think that expectation games really got to them. No, that's a really smart point, because when you're trying to figure out what the hell has been wrong with that team and why everyone seems so miserable, I do think a huge factor has been everyone involved grading themselves on this like Warriors adjacent curve. And they were supposed to be the threat to Golden State. They were supposed to be the foregone conclusion Eastern Conference Finals team. And like that just hasn't been who they are, in large part because like Gordon Hayward hasn't been the guy they expected. Jason Tatum shooting has fallen off. We've Kyrie, been Kyrie. You never <laughs> listen, you Kyrie. never list Kyrie when you do all these reasons for uh, Boston's struggles. You, it, it takes you like nine different guys until you finally mention his name. Did you hear that Kyrie, I think Stephen A. Smith reported that Kyrie will take a meeting with the Lakers. I don't want to misconstrue exactly what he reported, but apparently a meeting with the Lakers is not out of the question. And that had been floated earlier this season, but like, it just seems so crazy to me that I didn't take it seriously when that bubbled up like a couple months ago. But if that really happens, like, if Kyrie were to ever end up on LA, it might honestly like break my brain as a sports fan. It would be like entering a full-on just post-team era. Like none of this matters. Well, Andrew, he doesn't owe you anything. Didn't he tell us that? <laughs> like 
<laughs> he doesn't <laughs> owe you true. and the rest of the Celtics fan base anything. Yeah, you sound like you're ready to start getting like a Kyrie equals Benedict Arnold tattoo on your shoulders. You really sound mad about that, man. No, it would just be so bizarre after everything we have found out about that relationship uh, with LeBron and then to just turn around and go to L.A. It would be like, all right, so the last three years were basically complete bullshit. And now we're going to talk ourselves into LeBron and Kyrie in L.A. Like, more power to him. It would be... The one thing you have to give Kyrie credit for is like that decision, if he ever made that, would be consistent with how defiantly obnoxious he has been at every step of the way. So maybe that's where we're headed. Who knows? Sounds like a very elaborate way to get a lot of Instagram followers. That's sort of what I, <laughs> yeah. I, mean, I don't know. Like I, And troll the universe, you like, know? Show us a, that teams are just a construct. Right, exactly. You know, your loyalties and your allegiances, you know, is that above his brotherhood with LeBron, right? <laughs> no, I don't know. Maybe they can have a meeting or I don't see any way he's going to play on the Lakers. If he is, he's even crazier happening. than, uh, you know, he's come off at times. It would be pretty hilarious. Kyrie shows up at the introductory press conference and starts lecturing us about how we're all just rooting for laundry at the end of the day. It would actually be on brand the more I think about it. Um, but uh, the other guys on this list that I noticed, New Orleans Pelicans, the over-under was 45. They're going to win 33 games. They are nearly the biggest disappointment, but I believe that my Washington Wizards, who were somehow projected to win 46 games and are actually sitting on 32 wins, are currently the biggest disappointment in the NBA, if we go by the numbers here. Did, wasn't there a podcast you told us they were going to make the finals this year? Or was that last year? And it all runs together. But there was one year where you were really optimistic and you were talking yourself into it. I think it might have been this year. Yeah, biggest disappointment tracks with my reality, okay? I don't have any more blind faith or uh, irresponsible optimism to offer on this podcast. But yeah, I don't know. It is, um, it's interesting to look back at all this because you've got teams like the Spurs went over... The Nets went way over. You know, the um, team that really surprised me going over by so much, it's Orlando. Apparently, they were at 30.5. They've already won 41. I mean, that's pretty wild, especially when you look at their last five years of win totals. You know, you expect kind of modest progress. And look, they're not barely a winning team. They're going out really quickly in the playoffs. But that's a significant uh, overperformance. And maybe we should have seen that coming. We saw the butt effect coming in Milwaukee. There is like the Steve Clifford bounce, isn't there? Where it's like, all right, he's going to squeeze everything he possibly can out of your guys. You're going to be respectable. They're going to listen for at least 12 months. We'll see where it really gets you. Uh, but he he's at least good for that. And, you know, it, I think that's what he delivered, basically, like, you know, right to the script. Yeah, absolutely. And we have a question here from Parker about the magic. So great segue, Ben. He asks... Where in the real story versus cute story spectrum does Orlando fall? The Magic have come a long way from you and I putting Jonathan Isaac into the hypothetical basketball player loan system to get him on a playoff team because the Magic are an actual playoff team now. So what do you think? What do you make of like how much this actually matters to them? Okay, you got to quit with this you and I stuff, okay? This was another one of your ideas, throw Jonathan Isaac. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely was the one who threw out Jonathan Isaac's name. I've loved him since the draft. 
Yeah, all right. You got you're you're, you're podcasting with the mouse in your pocket. Every single episode, you just <laughs> keep saying we we. Um, they're a cute story. I mean, ultimately, they're a very cute story. I, I don't think that they're built very well for the playoffs. I think that it's been pretty amazing how high they've been able to climb in the standings with such a bad record. I mean, again, you know, complete shade intended toward the Eastern Conference. But like this, you know, final week playoff chase with all these teams fighting for sixth, seventh and eighth and, you know, all of the incredible back padding going on for the Brooklyn Nets and all this. It's like, all right, let's kind of keep it in perspective. I mean, Philly, who I don't even really trust Philly should smoke whoever they get in that 3-6, right? Like, don't you think that's a yep. five-game series at uh, at max? Like, shouldn't they be yeah. sweeping potentially? Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I don't really take any of these teams that seriously in the playoffs. I do think that there's something to the idea that this actually does matter for the Magic, um, in part because, like, the last five seasons there have just been so, so bad, and... We forget, like, I would look up at Magic Games a couple years ago and see absolutely no hope, absolutely no plan, and then you start thinking, like, all right, so why is there a basketball team in Orlando? Like, would anyone actually care if this team moved? And I'm sure we have listeners who would, but, like, and when you think about the big picture... Listener, I mean, single, Kevin Diaz, oh, <laughs> he would be very upset. I don't know if there's any other <laughs> Magic well, fans out there. That's true. We have a couple Magic super fans, starting with Kevin Diaz, but it's just like I I don't I don't know. And so if when that's your baseline to then turn around and outperform expectations by ten or eleven games and really like kick ass at various points this year, and and really if you isolate the Magic season to the last six weeks, they have been playing really, really well. I don't know what their schedule has been like over that span, but like the numbers are pretty impressive. And Jonathan Isaac is pretty impressive. I think the thing I worry about with them long-term is like Vucevic, I still don't really see as a player you can win meaningful games with i mean he's been great for them this year and i'm sure people are going to be like what the fuck are you talking about but like he's his defensive liabilities worry me a little bit and so i wish they had a a, a better solution there and a, a they need guards let me hop in on the vucevic defense thing i think he's made progress and shown that he can be pretty helpful within his scheme now is he going to be a guy in the playoffs where if you're they're playing against a really good team you could still pick on him and find ways to exploit him uh, I think so. I mean, their defense has improved and he's been playing lots of minutes. So I think I would give him some of that, like he can be part of a functional team defense, especially with all those athletes they've got around him. So I think they're yeah. in a pretty good shape there. I think my big question though about Vucevic is, okay, it's always dangerous when you've got the career year in a contract year and it's like an aberration, right? It's like, he's yep. never going to be more motivated at any point of his career than he was this season, right? Because it's going to be good timing for him. There's not that many centers on the market. Orlando, they're going to be facing a lot of internal pressure to pay up to keep him after this playoff chase, right? No matter what kind of happens in the postseason, it's it's difficult to see them saying, you know what? Thanks so much for like bending over backwards and sticking with us for six years, Nicola. We're just going to let you walk. <laughs> you know, like that's yeah. going to be a pretty bitter uh, pill to swallow. So if he does get paid, they do keep him around. Okay, what does that mean for their team building? And can they expect him to continue to improve over the next two or three seasons? Uh, that would be my concern that, you know, this 
magic carpet ride, you know, pun intended, of the last three months, winds up <laughs> with like a four or five year contract that's so big for Vucevic that it just kind of winds up capping your ceiling on who you can be. And that's kind of what I mean is he's been great this year, but I'm still not sure who you can be if he's the guy that you're building around. And he that has been true for a couple seasons. And as he's improved this season, their whole team has improved. So more power to him. He deserves a lot of credit, but he's still not necessarily someone I would look at this summer and say, all right, we need to build on this season's success and pay him and bring him back. Um, and then again, real quick, another marker of their progress though, has been, you remember at the beginning of the season, I was like trying to sell hard on like the reason to watch the magic games is to just gawk at Mo Bamba and let, let's see the future of what this guy could do. I mean, he basically didn't matter for them whatsoever. Uh, he became an afterthought, you know, pretty quickly. I think he started one game all year. Um, and it impacted their watchability and the excitement factor around that team. Zero. You know, and so how often does that happen where you've got a pretty intriguing, what, top five, top six pick giving you not zero, but pretty close to it in the big picture. And yet it, it winds up being this big win and this huge step forward. I, you don't see that very often. Oh, man. So now you have brought the party down a little bit because part of why I like this Orlando playoff run is that they're not necessarily missing out on any can't miss guys in this draft (laughs) but (laughs) it would have been nice to nail last year's lottery pick and instead they ended up with Mo Bamba whose agent should honestly win like a Nobel Prize for the spin job that he did with Mo Bamba in the two months before that draft Um, but I hope he can turn it around too because he's he's one of the most interesting rookies. uh, Let's let's do the redraft. So if if you could have Wendell Carter, Colin Sexton, I'm assuming not Kevin Knox, um, you know Shea, Gilgis Alexander. If you could poach any of those guys who were drafted after Bomba for Orlando, is there one that jumps out to you? Um, I really wanted them to take either Wendell Carter Jr. or Trey Young, whichever one fell to them, and then they went with Bamba for some reason. Who The main reason I didn't totally understand the Bamba pick was because they already had Jonathan Isaac, who could, in theory, work really well as a five. At least it, their best lineups would be him playing small ball five. He wouldn't necessarily have to play it full time. But Bamba was kind of like this plotting dude who I guess the selling point was that you could just plant him out by the three-point line and he could stretch the floor some of the time but like it just didn't make sense to me when someone like Wendell Carter Jr. would have been an awesome guy to pair with Jonathan Isaac and you could just book having a great interior defense for 10 years. Yeah and also that whole decision with Vucevic you know if you do have to lose him this summer it's a little bit easier to swallow if you've got Carter and you feel like okay this guy can be a ready-made guy next season as opposed to Bamba, who's coming off this leg injury, and you know who knows what he's going to give you next year. You know, one other thing on Wendell Carter that's really been jumping out to me, Andrew, is I, do you hear that story about like after they won the high school title, he like cleaned up all the trash on the bus, like he was the last guy off? <laughs> yes. <laughs> For whatever there was, there was a point on the basketball internet where there was like a long Wendell Carter profile every three days <laughs> right. for about six weeks straight. <laughs> well, let me just say that penetrated my brain because I was out there doing my super bloom thing again this weekend. And everywhere I look, people are just disrespecting nature. And there's all these hashtags now, like leave no trace. And obviously, you know about my mantra, which is, you know, 
take nothing but photos, leave nothing but footprints. And I just think like if anybody embodies that right now, it's Wendell. And I think for that reason, I want him on my team. Like he, he just, just <laughs> off that anecdote, like I don't care about the injury issues or any other questions in Chicago or everything else, just off that anecdote alone and what that says about his character, that's my guy. There you go. Um, well, so now we all know the way to Ben's heart. And with that, uh, well, let's th- keep it moving. Yeah, I was going to nominate real quick Shea Gilgis-Alexander, though, for the, the Magic, like on the redraft. Uh, he's mm. a pretty interesting player, long. I don't know if he, if he has star potential. I, I know the Magic fans are kind of defensive, and they, they like to hype up the job that DJ Augustin's done. That feels yeah. like the cute story part of their season to me. It's like, okay, like DJ Augustin, you know, willing you to 41 wins during the regular season, fine. Like what's going to happen uh, when the lights turn on in a couple weeks? You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, well, no, DJ Augustine has been really good, but I still watch their team and I'm just like, how is DJ Augustine option one at point guard? He's <laughs> He's been great. There's like, there's no debating that he's outperforming what anyone could have reasonably expected from well, him. He's but, been great for DJ Augustine. He hasn't been great. <laughs> that's what I mean. Yeah, no, but he's been solid and that's a win. And the magic have been really cool as a story of a team that was like, basically in no man's land for six or seven years in a row and now are going to be in the playoffs and i'm actually excited to see them thrown in the mix but um i do have some questions the shea element that's interesting because the one thing that i would add to every clippers discussion that we have had collectively as a basketball community for the last four months is that i hear a lot of people kind of throwing Shea in as a token future star. And I don't really see it. I think I, he's got really good instincts and can be a starter, but um, he's not as far along as some of the hype would suggest. He's got the star charisma and the makeup and the moxie. Like he likes yeah. the ball. He's not afraid to play with older players. Like he was ready to go from day one. But like, if you're saying like, breaking guys down off the dribble and going to be a 20 points per game score like the lead option of an offense or flip it and say he's Trey Young like ability to pass the ball play make keep everybody involved and have a great offense down the road I don't see either one of those things and so that's why it's going to be kind of difficult uh, for a player like that I guess I was just trying to hint that I wish their roster still had a little bit more balance from front court versus backcourt um, yeah. because I think that's going to be a major limiting factor. Like even in a best case scenario where they keep Vucevic and they run it back and Bama comes back and he looks like a lottery pick, the guy that they draft, they're still, again, I mean, they have a huge hole there and Augustin is not the long-term solution. I don't really know how they address that spot. Yeah. Well, um, we shall see. We'll all find out together with Orlando Magic free agency this summer. That's going to be the top of the billing. That's <laughs> the league turns upside down. But for now, uh, let's move on. Today's show is brought to us by Untuck It. Ben, do you ever wonder why traditional button-ups look so long and baggy? Well, that's because they were never meant to be worn that way. And Untuck It shirts were specifically designed to be worn untucked. Untuck It is the brand you've been looking for. It's the original Untuck shirt. A modern solution to an old problem with no tucking or tailoring required. No matter your size or shape, their shirts are the perfect untucked length. Tell me a little bit more about Untuck It, Ben. 
Well, they want to know about my personal experience. I'm just going to say flat out, when I was first breaking into the NBA writing community, there was a lot of old school writers who would look down on NBA GMs who might show up at games with their shirts untucked. They'd say, oh, it's not professional. Why aren't these guys wearing jackets? That never would have happened in the 70s and 80s. But Andrew, in reading what you just said, you said it was a modern solution and it's a modern trend. Nobody wants to wear dress shirts tucked in all the time, but if your shirt is meant to be tucked in and you wear it that way and then you untuck it, now it's all creased and gross and you're going to look like a slob. You don't want that. That's where untuck it really comes in. They just nailed this solution. They're giving you a shirt that's meant to be worn untucked the whole time. So it's not going to be all wrinkled. It's going to fit right. It's not going to be too long. Um, And, you know, my personal experience, I got a couple of these shirts, Andrew. They sent them along. They look good. They look crisp. They get the job done. And that's what I have to say about untuck it. There you go. And everybody can try untuck it at untuckit.com or one of Untuckit's 50 stores across America. They even offer free shipping and returns on all orders in the U.S. You can save 20% on your first order by using our code OPEN at checkout. That is untuckit.com, promo code OPEN, U-N-T-U-C-K-I-T.com, promo code OPEN, and then with that, let's get back into the questions. Um, Alf in Milwaukee has this to say. He says, for some reason, the entire basketball media has decided that it needs to push back against Bucks hype and talk about how they will face trouble in the playoffs. This is simply a bad take. The Bucks are clearly the best team in the East. They've beaten all the other top Eastern Conference teams over the course of the season. The clear order in the East is number one, Milwaukee, number two, Toronto, number three, Philly, number four, Boston. And if Toronto and Milwaukee keep playing like they have been, they will clearly meet in the Eastern Conference Finals. Um, What's your reaction to all that, Ben? Well, Alf, I agree with you in principle, but your presentation's terrible. You're drifting into the termite (laughs) tendencies. All right, you're getting to that Toronto, us against the world. The media doesn't believe in us. We're in this little igloo, and we're going to be screaming at everybody outside the igloo. You don't need to have that attitude, okay? Uh, You're right. Milwaukee's success speaks for itself. Milwaukee goes into this postseason despite their lack of collective success. They've never won a playoff series together. A lot of the guys are new. Uh, Some of them arrived by trade within this season as the the favorites. Uh, I think that they've absolutely got another gear to go to that they haven't reached yet. Most of that has become uh, because of Giannis. I think um, even though we've hyped him for a year straight, I don't think that he's still receiving enough attention um, from the outside, uh, you know, the, the non-open floor media. I think that's going to change here within the next few weeks once people start watching him night in and night out. Changing perception of a franchise doesn't, you know, uh, take effect within one year. Uh, people are going to have to see it to believe it. And I think that they're going to be smacking teams early in this playoffs because they're going to get, you know, a softie. Whoever they play in the first round is going to be, you know, in and out pretty quick. Um they're going to be waking people up and people are going to be rushing towards that Bucks bandwagon here within the next week or two. So I would say, Alf, if it bothers you that much, practice a little bit more patience. You're going to be able to say, I told you so sometime down the road. Um, okay. First of all, I love hearing you address someone named Alf on the podcast. Please continue speaking directly to Alf for the rest of the show here. Um, 
as far as the the life coaching, the big television (laughs) cartoon character. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, So as far as the Bucks are concerned, I do, I want, if anyone gets bored this week, go back and listen to our podcast immediately following the All-Star Game and after our pilgrimage to Michael Jordan's high school because I came on and said some reckless things. I threw out a Jordan comparison for Giannis because athletically and mentally, Jordan was so far superior to anyone else in his era. And I'm beginning to see shades of that with Giannis. And I felt insane at the time, but it feels a little less insane now. So just saying that, I believe in Giannis. As far as the East pecking order, I do feel like we're going to maybe look back at this email from Alf and be like, whoa, he kind of jinxed things because his argument is basically that nothing is going to change from what's happened in the regular season. And I just don't think that's a safe bet. I think, I mean, first of all, he's out here talking about bad takes like Philly as the third best team in the East is a bad take. They are, they are the least stable of any of the four contenders in the East and they could make the finals but I, I have the least confidence in them, and I think that's like a fair, objective place to be. Um, and really, like I still think it's kind of a toss-up. All these teams have different strengths and weaknesses that put them close to even. If you want to say Milwaukee should get the nod because Giannis is the best player in the NBA, that makes sense to me, but like it's not a huge edge. Well, that's not their whole case, though. I mean, they've got an elite offense, an elite defense. Uh, they've got winning records against all these other teams within this group during the regular season. So I think there's a middle point between saying it's just going to be complete chalk in the postseason and I think what you're arguing, which is, well, we're just flipping coins here. I don't think we're flipping coins. I think that's unfair <laughs> to Milwaukee. Okay. okay, well, if Milwaukee starts to struggle, just remember ALF, okay? And remember that I warned you that not all of this shit is just hey, perfectly linear look, from where we were in like March and April. Favorites lose in the playoffs and prohibitive favorites, overwhelming favorites lose in the playoffs. We saw that in the 2016 finals. I mean, you know, from a statistical standpoint, that was one of the flukiest things that you're ever going to see. Golden State losing those three games in a row. Um, and yet it happened. And the same thing can bite a team that's not nearly as talented top to bottom as that Warriors team with the Bucks, But it's not mm-hmm. to guarantee that they're going to make the finals this season and come out of the East, but it is to say like their body of work deserves the respect and I'm with him. And uh, I do think that they can play better than they even showed during the regular season. Like it's not going to come out in the double digit victories every single night because the competition in the playoffs is better. But I think right. if you're, if you're playing Giannis more, you're leaning more heavily on your starters. Guys are completely locked in. Every game matters. You can adjust, you know, game to game. Uh, and you have the best player in the conference by a considerable margin. Um, to me, that's a pretty good formula. Um, yeah, that's fine. Good argument. Uh, can you remind me real quick, going into those 2016 finals, who picked the Cavs to win the NBA championship? And and also, an additional question, who is here. generally right about the big things on this podcast? Oh, God. You get one thing right in five years, and you never let us forget about it. It's, <laughs> it's pathetic. And I'm sure you changed your mind three times. A lot of big things. A lot of big things. Oh, boy. All right. So Andre says, is it my imagination, or is Pascal Siakam playing a lot like Draymond Green? If we could flip Pascal Siakam for Draymond in the playoffs, 
Who would benefit more, Toronto or Golden State? Come on. Um, what? Stop disrespecting Draymond Green. I hate this stuff. You guys, you and all these listeners love to write off these players that were amazing two years ago and are a little bit less amazing now. Like, you're ready to put Chris Paul out to pass strike and hear it in your voice. Same thing with Draymond Green. Draymond's still a stud. He's going to crank it up in the postseason, just like he did last year. Uh, the Warriors have been cranking it up for the last, you know, two to three weeks. They're blowing teams out left and right. He's part of it. You know, they have this regular season defense that's like 10th or 11th. Uh, in the league right now, I'm pretty uh-huh. confident that that's going to be a top two or three defense once the playoffs roll around. Um, I understand that we should give Pascal some love. He's had an amazing season. I would pick him for the most improved player, but it's not the same thing when doing it in the postseason as doing it in the playoffs. And I think that you know some of this uh, comparison might come from the fact that Draymond's not as athletic and as overwhelming and as uh, nonstop or incessant or whatever word you want to use that he, that he was in that kind of prime 2016 window. But this guy still is so smart, uh, so versatile. And once they're actually playing their best lineup, this death lineup, everyone's going to be looking around and saying, well, we still haven't figured out a way to stop the Warriors yet. <laughs> yeah, well, that's fair. Uh, I mean, you're out here sounding like Kyrie. You, can't, you stop short of saying comparison is the thief of joy but you were close that's sort of the territory you were treading near and as far as i'm concerned is that Kyrie I, or is that gabby wasn't gabby telling us that we can't compare Dwayne wade and paul pierce now what are we supposed oh to do if boy, we can't compare two professional players come on <laughs> gabby was. don't put us out of business yeah look i'm fine with comparing players and as far as pascal and draymond i do think it's interesting because the comparison underscores what a perfect situation Golden State is for Draymond. I think on that team, he is so huge for them and gives them everything they need in, in some areas that it, he covers some blind spots for them and, um, and they cover some blind spots for him. And if you put him on the Raptors, I don't know if the Raptors would be better than they have been with Pascal Siakam, which is kind of a crazy thing to think about. And it says a lot about how great Siakam has been. And the main reason I included this question is because I think the playoffs are going to be where the rubber meets the road with the Siakam hype. And we're about to find out like how real this has been and how real the Raptors can be because they're the team that literally for like four months, I feel like we haven't really talked about the Raptors at all. And they could still go in and hang with anybody like as great as the Bucks have been. The Raptors are a couple wins off their pace and Kawhi has missed 20 games. So, like, yeah. they might be kind of a sleeping giant. I'm not really sure. That's fair enough, but this is not about Pascal. This is about respecting Draymond. I'm going to give you a stat, okay? Do you know how I many— I respect Draymond. No, I'm you don't. Here. You're out here. You're the one who picks these questions. Just by putting this question and you disrespected him, just like the listener disrespected oh, Draymond. Oh, God. Now, listen. You sound like Gabby. <laughs> listen, 177 minutes is all the death lineup has played together this year. Okay, they've appeared in only 35 games, not even in a half the games that Golden State's played. Some of that's because of injury, but some of that is because of all Kerr's crazy tendencies with his lineups, right? Do you know what they're outscoring opponents in that time they've played together? They are plus 33.3 per 48 minutes when they play together, Andrew. So that's right in line with where they were in last year's playoffs, uh, actually a little bit higher. And, you know, same thing goes as soon as Kevin Durant got there, they were blowing teams off the court uh, in the postseason his first year as well. I mean, it, to me, it's the ultimate sandbag or, uh, you know, rope-a-dope or whatever, whatever you want to call it. Like, 
Draymond's value always comes through most obviously in April, May, and June. And I guarantee you we're not going to be sitting here in June saying, boy, it's too bad Golden State didn't have Pascal Siaka. Boy, if they could have switched that, they would be in such better shape. Come on. Okay, I'm not I'm not suggesting that Golden State would ever in a million years want Siakam. I'm saying that Toronto might prefer Siakam to Draymond's like two for seven performances in the playoffs. Because even when he's playing well, and granted, he's been shooting well for the last month or so. And if that continues, then it really is just like lights out for the rest of the league. Well, the real thing is they've got to play a center, right? I mean, because they've got so many of them, like whether you call Ibaka yeah. a center or... Uh, Marcus Saul or however else you're going to do it. So I guess lineup positional fit, like having Siakam fits a little bit better with those guys. But if you're telling me I'm Toronto and I could start my roster, my one of my big three guys, and Draymond's one of them, well, I never make the Marcus Saul trade because I'm good there. I go spend those resources somewhere else and and you know fill out my roster in a different way. So it's a it's a tricky what if. Uh, I do think Pascal fits slightly better with their current roster construction. But I think if you give Masai the option to trade those two players just for one season at the start of the year, I think he would do it. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, I'm not as sure about how transferable Draymond's value is. Um, And that's something that I... Like well, that's my, why I yelled at you 60 seconds ago because I know you disrespect <laughs> this guy, man. It's crazy. I don't know what more he has to do for you. Oh boy, I like he. Draymond's great. He's one of my favorite players in the last 10 years. I'm not a Draymond well, hater. You know God who people? Ca- okay, listen. People compare him to Dennis Rodman, right? And look, I'm I'm milking this just for effect a little bit. I like to be on Team Draymond because I think he. Uh, other than his treatment of the officials, he's you know got a lot of the virtues and values that I look for. People yep. compare Draymond to Dennis Rodman. Dennis Rodman was very, very, very transferable. He made the Pistons better. Look, he didn't really get along with the Spurs. We're going to wipe that part from the memory memory bank. But he sure sure fit in nicely with the Bulls once he got there, right? I mean, he was helping teams throughout his career. And it's not a perfect comparison, but those guys uh, share some similar qualities in terms of tenacity, defensive impact, rebounding, um, shot blocking, and those kinds of things, you know, guarding multiple different spots. Um, Absolutely. I think Draymond is much more transferable than the average casual fan gives him credit for. And some of that is just respect to, to the Splash Brothers. They just think, oh, well, he's playing on this incredible, like, you know, fit. And these guys are so great. Like, anyone could have success there. I think nothing could be further from the truth. He's made the most of a great opportunity. He's turned himself into an incredible player. And if you put him in a lot of different situations, he would be making his teams better. Okay. So if he goes to LA somehow this summer, That'd be great. Come on, Draymond. <laughs> like, come out here and save <laughs> save the Lakers. <laughs> well, I'm just saying, as far as LeBron looking for a sidekick, I think he might be left wanting in some well, categories if Draymond look, goes and plays with LeBron. They'd be better on HBO than they would be on the court. Okay, that, I, I there's think no that- <laughs> question about that. Draymond would be epic on the shop. I think he should have like a permanent spot next to LeBron on that show to keep things interesting. The Draymond question I have is like, if if he's your second star, he's not he's not gonna be what you need. And if you have two other stars, Draymond is gonna be incredible. And that's the way I would explain his value. Um, but your your points are well taken. Like he's awesome, and a lot of casual fans will hate on him and say he's one of the most overrated players in the league. I saw a poll this week where 
players said he was one of the most overrated players. Him and Westbrook. Well, and um, yeah, that's because he has those digs that that really touch people. You know, he knows the buttons to push to really get to people. And like, if you've been on the wrong side of a, a Draymond rant, or he's called you a few names you don't want to be called, like, you're going to be th- looking for anything you could do to slight Draymond. And well, calling him also, overrated is a great way to do it. He's good at things that are harder to appreciate. And he uh, he also well, doesn't try during the regular season anymore. Right. So like, T- totally. That's part of it because you think he's overrated because you're not seeing Draymond at his best, right? I, yeah. I promise you, Lamarcus Aldridge after last year's playoffs doesn't think Draymond is overrated. I can promise it, you that. Exactly. Exactly. So anyone who who's actually hating on Draymond, tone it down. Uh, I do think there are some interesting questions there. But moving on here. Can I read one more question uh, toward the end here? Please. All right. Ernesto says, To vouch for my boy, Ben, I bet a lot of listeners over the years have rolled their eyes when he talks about his basketball skills and the tragic knee injury that brought him down. But Golliver and I met in Cuba, and we were bored at a resort and decided to start shooting around. Ben proceeded to drain jumpers and dunk. And I thought, oh, wow, this dude doesn't just wear throwbacks and talk. This really makes me wish I knew you in college. Uh, And then he continues. Same old G. Don't worry about it. (laughs) He says, next year, he decided to play intramural hoops like an idiot and got his leg wiped out. While I didn't witness that, I was the guy who drove him to physical therapy each week. Uh, so thank you for writing in for me, Ernesto, for all of our listeners to provide a little backstory to Ben's college experience. Yeah, just uh, to be I, clear, I didn't I didn't pay Ernesto to write that all those nice things. <laughs> but shout out to him and Damien and a few other guys, you know, from the Johns Hopkins, uh, you know, underworld. I, I yeah, appreciate hearing Hopkins from him. Yeah, the Hopkins Mafia, the Blue Jays. <laughs> uh, just to fact check he actually didn't drive me to physical therapy I had to crutch my way across campus to that he drove me to all of like my follow-up exams and the MRIs and all of that stuff which was like way out in the middle of nowhere and when he I was reading that email it reminded me of just how bad the world was before Uber and like I was very skeptical of Uber but like the idea that you would have to take a cab like 45 minutes into the suburbs to get an MRI and then hope that there would be a cab just randomly oh, out there yeah, in the suburbs true. to like bring you back to the city uh, was basically impossible. And, you know, getting crutches onto a bus and all that, I mean, it was just never going to happen. So Ernesto, besides just being like overly complimentary in this email, also got brownie points from the basketball gods for life for going out of his way for all those uh, drives. So I, I certainly am in his debt. Yeah, well... The reason I included it is because I can't believe that there was a point in your life when you could dunk. How regular was that? Like, could you stop consistently being disrespectful? Dunk? You're out here talking crap about hard, and now you're going to bring it to me. <laughs> Come no, on, I think that's amazing. That's so cool. If I could dunk, I would dunk every single day of my life. Well, look, I'm just going to let people like Ernesto speak on my behalf. I'm going to follow the Tim Duncan mold. I'm not going to hype myself up, okay? Just let the <laughs> <laughs> let the record speak for itself. I could dunk. It, you know, I'm 6'3". I got pretty long arms. I don't know my wingspan. Maybe I should get measured. But uh, it wasn't that out of the ordinary. Um, you know, I think a lot of people who are 6'3 can dunk. Okay. Well, 
for all the listeners out there who have gold leaf portraits of Ben Golliver and uh, and live by his code, there's some good humility for you. If I could dunk, I would talk about it every day. Um, well, bottom line, Andrew, always off two feet, always with two hands, you know. And if a layup suffices, <laughs> use the back part. <laughs> no, I'm just playing. Uh, uh, I could I could barely dunk. It was you know stretching fingertips one handed at full speed uh, was was pretty much like the max of my capabilities. Okay, that makes me feel better. I was previously incredibly jealous but i'm glad that it was like kind of a sad dunk not like real oh, throwing no, it, wasn't it down sad. on the block I, well i mean clearly it was international balling because i he's he remembered it from cuba That's so true. what can i say live from havana um all right well let's end it there ben you're gonna be back later this week we're gonna have a full top to bottom playoff preview at the end here we're going to transition to an interview with my friend Amos Barshad, whose new book, No One Man Should Have All That Power, is out Tuesday, April 9th, which is when this show is going to be published. And um, half of this interview is about basketball, half is about the book. So enjoy it, or if you only came for Ben and I, uh, then check back next Thursday. No, stop right there, Andrew. Hype this interview up. It's going to be a great interview. I haven't actually heard it, but I'm sure it's great questions from you, great answers from him. It's going to be phenomenal. People should check it out. Email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. Check us out on Apple Podcasts by searching for Open Floor. That's two words. Find our page, scroll down. It will say rate and review, tap five stars. It's just that easy. Don't forget, I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golliver. The Lantern will be coming at some point here. Maybe not for the playoff episode, but some other time in the near future. So follow along on there. Andrew, until later this week, when you're going to have come back with your senses, I'll talk to you. (laughs) Yes. By the way, our next podcast is on Friday, not Thursday. But with that, the interview. All right, and now I am very excited to welcome a rare guest on Open Floor, my old colleague from Grantland, Amos Barshad. What's up, man? How you doing? Hey, how are you? Thanks for having me. So we're here because you wrote a book about Rasputins throughout the world, and yeah. um, <laughs> I mean, that's kind of a broad topic, so tell me what the book is about. Yeah, for sure. Um, so basically, um, I tried to explore this archetype of a uh, Rasputin, um, you know, using the real life historical example of Grigory Rasputin, who, you know, I kind of uh, see as this infamous uh, behind the scenes operator, kind of the most famous of all time. Uh, he was killed in 1916 by his political enemies. Uh, you know, before then, he was, uh, you know, said to have influence over the last Tsar and Tsarina of the Russian Empire. And, uh, and I kind of had fun in the book unpacking both, you know, the myths and the realities of Rasputin, and then jumping all over the world, like you said, and trying to find Rasputins in, you know, sports and politics and uh, uh, pop culture and some, you know, drug cartel Rasputins, uh, all kinds of things like that, you know, with the idea um, basically being, you know, we often hear about these influential operators, these shadowy figures that are said to kind of wield power in the shadows, and we're never sure how, how real it is. Um, and, uh, and so, yeah, it was kind of a fun way to, to kind of get at that. Yeah, it's really cool. I mean, first of all, I, this is embarrassing to admit, but I've heard the name Rasputin my entire life and never really knew the history behind it. So you uncovered oh, no, that. No. Yeah, no, not embarrassing at all. I mean, 
you know, some would say uh, uh, basing a whole book about a semi-obscure uh, historical character was a bad <laughs> idea. <laughs> I uh, obviously disagree. Um, and here we are. Um, but no, I mean, I think, um, you know, a lot of people kind of know the name and might know like one or two things about him, uh, might have seen some some photos. Um, you know, he was like famous for uh, his, his love of drinking and things like that. So people know some of these little factoids, but, right. um, but yeah, I think, I think a lot of people, um, generally don't know this story, um, which is kind of what makes it so fun. Um, you know, more of the recent biographies have been kind of more accurate about what really happened. But, uh, but the, the reality is that it's just, he's just become this like demonic figure basically. And it's, it's, it's not really, uh, not really the case. I've kind of like grown very fondly towards him the more I've like read about him. That's um, but basically awesome. his, his his death was what uh, what what lured me in uh, originally. He was like shot, uh, poisoned, and they said kind of uh, drowned in a river. Um, uh, so that was the original thing that kind of hooked me to this guy. Yeah, the so kind of a rough end for Rasputin there, but yes. no, that's really cool because those shadowy figures throughout history are some of the most interesting people to talk about and learn about. And there's it's always kind of tough to separate the myth from what actually happened, but I can kind of read endless amounts of backstory about any of them. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it's a, it's a cool topic for a book. Who are some of the other people you, you dealt with? Uh, well, in sports, um, I, uh, I got a, uh, an interview with Alex Guerrero, Tom Brady's trainer. Um, and, uh, and we kind of spoke about, uh, a little bit about his, his, you know, public perception versus reality, which I think is, kind of the heart of the book trying to understand the the difference between public and private roles and you know I didn't know too much about him um you know I I think there's you know a lot of coverage um kind of gets into his relationship with Brady and some of his uh pseudoscience uh, yeah so the pseudoscience it's almost there's two kind of there's two kind of uh uh like schools of thought on the guy you know trying to figure out what's going on with the um, TB12 method and some of this stuff that he says will, will heal you. And then there's a specific like uh, internal debates on how he influences the Patriots locker room, which I think both are pretty interesting. So, you know, I, I, I got a chance to talk and, and hear him kind of explain himself in his own words. Um, and, uh, and at the same time, um, got a chance to jump into all this great reporting that's been done by all these various outlets um, about, uh, about his role. So that was pretty, pretty fascinating for me. Yeah. Um, just to just to be able to you know basically ask him you know what is it that you're doing that you have such devotion such such loyalty from these you know really powerful figures um, and you know I hope just kind of let him uh, say it in his own words you know what I mean I mean I think the facts are really all out there I try to kind of capture them all in this chapter um, and then at the same time you know be able to to sit there with him and uh and hear him out it's kind of interesting though because other reporters that have sat down with him a couple of them have gone through the process of actually uh you know being healed by him and they always <laughs> end up coming out uh, you know believing him believing his whole uh philosophy his whole mantra um, yeah so I, I stayed away from that because i didn't want to you know fall fall into the possibility that uh that uh, you know i'd be kind of a uh, you losing my uh, my point of view here as soon so, as he put his his hands on me. So you weren't out there doing like pliability exercises in Foxborough, Massachusetts. No, no, I was in Foxborough. Uh, you know, it was in the uh, it was in the 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 their TB12 uh, center there, which is a nice high end place, and they have all that stuff right. And as you walk in, and and 
as other people have uh, have noted, that stuff is really expensive. Uh, so uh, so I didn't purchase any of it myself. Yeah, <laughs> probably a wise choice. I mean, that was going to be my next question, though. Is like, I don't know. I find that when I sit down with people and talk to them for an hour or two, it's difficult to maintain critical distance because I just ch- tend to just like whoever I'm talking to. And <laughs> right. like you're talking to some sketchy people and with kind of nebulous roles. I mean, when it's not Guerrero, uh, you also talk to Scott, Scooter Braun, Justin Bieber's manager, who's a guy that like, it's funny because if you just give me like the rough outlines of his career, I'm just like, this guy sounds kind of insufferable. But then I listen to him talk and he, he sometimes like he makes sense in the way he kind of explains things and breaks down the music industry. And so like how hard was it as you met with some of these people to maintain that critical distance? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, uh, I think, and I hope that I was really coming into all these situations with an open mind. You know, if you already have your, mind made up about any of these people, you know, what's the point of actually going out there to, to interview them. Um, and so you kind of, you know, obviously you want to make sure that you're asking the questions that are pushing back on, on their points of view, challenging where they're coming from. And then at the same time, you know, giving them the space to, to, to make their argument. And I think with someone like Guerrero, you know, a lot of this information is out there, which I think is great. Uh, it's the, the, you know, Boston Magazine, ESPN, they've done really, really incredible reporting. Um, and so it's, it's just, it's, 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 a, it's nice to, at least for me to just have um, a long string of people talking. And I, I don't know if you feel the same way, but for me, like, that's my favorite thing is just being able to hear a person for long enough to be like, I think I'm getting the measure of this guy, you know, yeah, and, totally. and not so much to have someone come in and, and, and portray them in any kind of way, but just be like, hey, this is what I got. This is what they told me. And here it is for you to to analyze, you know, of course, putting it all into context, not letting someone have a platform that they are manipulating or in, or in any kind of way, but just to, to, to really kind of be like, this is what it was like to sit down with these people. I mean, one, another guy I spoke with was Alexander Dugin, who's said to have influence over Putin. Some of his ideology has influenced like some of Putin's warmongering and has he, this guy, this guy Dugin has like, uh, you know, some anti-Semitic leanings. So as a Jewish person, you know, obviously that wasn't like the greatest thing in the world, but, um, but at the same time, you know, you're sitting there and, uh, and as long as you're not, um, you know, providing, an unchecked um, mouthpiece. I think it is interesting to kind of let someone talk. Yeah, it's crazy. Um, And I do think that that's really interesting. And when you're kind of just sort of presenting it and letting other people decide, um, that's that's a good way to approach it. And then, I mean, the other question I have, you mentioned Putin's right hand man, like, how did you get some of these people to talk? Because in my experience, it's sort of like that saying, like, the people who know don't say, and the people who say don't really know, like the, I don't know, some of these shadowy people who are kind of pulling the strings are like, have gotten there because they, uh, they just, they, they never talk publicly. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's a, the second, uh, the second uh, great call I made to try to write uh, about things that happen behind the scenes and are therefore like by definition like impossible to access um but uh but i think that the uh i think that um i think that uh some of it really is uh is impossible to kind of um fully unpack which like brings it back to the the real rasputin and and how it's taken you know more than 100 years for some of the myths and rumors of his whole 
the deal to, to, to be revealed in like a sensible way. And, and I think also there's a part of this where we don't really want to know, you know, we don't, if we knew the whole thing, it wouldn't be fun anymore. So, you know, the more that you're getting these, these, these kind of hints and, and clues and you want to unpack it yourself, like that, that keeps it fun. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, you try to talk to as many people as possible and, and you try to, um, you know, put as many voices on a, on, on one thing as possible, you know, in order to, to provide multiple points of view um, but yeah, ultimately I think where I end in the book is, is kind of this, um, appreciation for things being shadowy, things being like unreachable, you know, and that's what, that's what makes them fun. Yeah, totally. Appreciating the mystery. So you, were you yeah. like emailing the Kremlin <laughs> to set up a meeting? <laughs> no, he's, uh, he's, uh, he's got like an assistant, um, and he's not officially, uh, he has no like official government, um, affiliation. Um, yeah. he's, uh, uh, was a, you know, a professor at Moscow state university at some point. He's kind of, uh, kind of this confusing, uh, figure. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it was, uh, you know, it was the kind of thing where you're saying, you know, this is the book, I'm trying to explore this archetype, you know, I'm, I'm kind of uh, unpacking uh, this idea. And of course, some people were comfortable with it, and some people were not. And, and, uh, and so that's, you know, it's kind of how it went. Yeah, uh, well, it's really cool. I and mean, it's exactly the type of book that works well with my ADD brain, where it's like <laughs> a series of vignettes from all over the map. And you can kind of yeah, put it I, down. I, and then... yeah, one day, maybe I'll try to be able to um, you know, string together a, a full narrative. But I was like, you know, as a as a fellow, you know, magazine uh, website writer, it's like, I, I don't really know how to, I need to take some breaks here, you know, piece together some profiles, you know, that, that exactly. was definitely an approach exactly. that appealed That's, to me. I don't understand how people write 400 words, or I mean, so 400 pages on like the yeah. same topic with the same kind of narrative thread. I like jumping oh, all over crazy. the map a little bit. But so since this is a basketball podcast, I'm curious about, some of the Rasputins in the basketball world. Like, did you think of anybody? And when you look at the NBA, like you're a sports fan, like are, are there names that, that jump out at you? Well, it's definitely, I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, 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 uh, very curious about like that world and all these figures in it. So one guy that I kind of reference, um, is, uh, Carlin Coker, who's, uh, was Porzingis' oh, trainer wow. at some point. I mean, I, I didn't get, I didn't get to him, but, you know, it's just, it's kind of an extension of the Guerrero thing, where you have these this person um, who is the trainer, who's in charge of the physical well being of the athlete, which is obviously so so important to them. So you can kind of understand why they would be beholden to them, even if there's other people around them in their orbit that's saying, you know, what's going on with this guy? Why is he so close to you? And it's kind of interesting to me because I saw I saw Coker, and I don't know if people know him, but he's like this kind of famous slash infamous figure. He's like extremely. Uh, extremely jacked uh he has worked with Shaq and Justin Bieber and all these people and you know at some point uh Porzingis started working with him oh another another car another um customer of his was Jeremy Piven um in wow. 2008 <laughs> uh Piven quit this uh Broadway show he was doing a David Mamet show and he quit because he said he got mercury poisoning from eating too much sushi and so I Coker was the doctor. Yeah, that, it's crazy. Coker was the doctor, apparently, that that uh, that uh, put forth that theory for Piven to share with the world. Yeah, um, always a good and, idea to entrust your career to Jeremy Piven's trainer. Who, by the way, right, right, like, right. for anyone who hasn't seen, what's his name, Carlton Coker? Uh, Carlin Coker. Carlin Coker. He kind of like yeah. has the vibe of of like a steroid dealer, like a low, right. a small time <laughs> steroid dealer, and Absolutely. so. 
I don't know. He doesn't scream like stability and sound science, uh, but it is interesting. Oh, no. like, like, actually, I hadn't thought about it, but I mean, that subculture of skills trainers and, yeah. and physical trainers throughout the NBA is exactly the kind of thing that you're talking about with this book. It's like guys who just have this power and influence that are, it's really hard to explain, but it's kind yeah. of indisputable. Absolutely. Yeah. And then most of the time they're not, you know, they're not officially, they don't exist in any kind of official structure. You know, they're not totally. official team members. They're not even, sometimes these guys aren't even necessarily getting paid directly, which is very confusing. I think a lot of the NBA trainers, a lot of the shot doctors and stuff like don't take payments, right? Which is, which is kind of a, a confusing thing. But yeah. Like I, Markel, the Markel Fold situation, I was very curious to see, uh, you know, who was having the last, um, pull of the string, if you will, to try to figure out exactly what's happening there. And I couldn't really clearly make progress on it, but I was very, very curious about that as well. Yeah, I mean, his shot doctor out in LA is another guy who was is kind of like in that zone where you're like, who who is paying you? How do you make yeah. money? You seem to be doing yeah. well, but like, I don't really right. understand how this model works. Um, yeah, yeah, it's super weird. The and other, then like the, oh, sorry, go ahead. Well, um, the other thing I was going to mention is the. Um, is like the shoe companies, I feel like, mm -hmm. have a lot of influence over what happens in basketball. Right. And they operate in the shadows as well. And it's like, I, you know, I'm not sure who at Nike, I, I know Lynn Merritt is, is a big deal over there. But like, I'm convinced when you look back at the last 10 years, like Nike has played a role in some of the biggest decisions that have happened. Like, I, I think Nike... Yeah. They had influence on KD that summer when he went to Golden State. Like, I have no idea what percentage of influence, but like, I've just always kind of wondered about it. So I'm, I'm actually oh, not <laughs> not alleging anything, but I've always wondered about it. No, for sure. And they're almost like powerful in a whole different realm. Like, you know, the influence that we had been talking about is more or less one-on-one. -on -one, and that's why you have these characters sometimes that are, you know, maybe not... Uh, the most with the most illustrious background, uh, you know, they found themselves in this position to, to influence a powerful person one on one. But, you know, Nike and these people, you know, that again, again, no allegations, nothing that I can, uh, <laughs> nothing I can prove, but they are clearly like shifting the entire uh, balance of, you know, a, a professional sports uh, league. So that's kind of influence on a, on a, on a scale, you know, beyond what we're talking about. Which yeah, is totally fascinating. It's crazy. And then I mean, there are people like Pat Riley, who obviously, again, are kind of like on a bigger scale than what you were talking about. But it's hard to explain the I don't know, the kind of the command of respect and the influence mm -hmm. that has continued for like 30 or 40 years for, for guys oh, for like sure. that. Yeah, um, absolutely. I mean, like the personal charisma stuff that comes down to the way that someone can't explain it to you. It seems like they can't explain it to you unless you've personally been, you know, in the room with that person and, and feel the manipulation and the, and the charisma coming across, you know, it's something that you can hear about, but if you're, if you're not there, then you just don't know what, it, why it's, why it's so powerful. It's nuts. Yeah. Um, so and I was thinking of coaches like too, it's funny to think about coaches cause you know, obviously there's a Tom Izzo incident, um, recently, um, you know, catching him just scream at his player and you see that and you think about coaches that just, you know, burn guys out by doing stuff like that. And right. then you see other people that have, you know, obviously Izzo, college coach, so he's getting new players all the time, but it's always the example of NBA guys who, you know, Thibodeau or something are, are lasting a few years in every location before they, 
have to keep moving because the 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 screaming only lasts so long so it's like clearly there's 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 levels to it you know like the true scale of manipulation to me is is the is the kind of the ineffable kind yeah yeah absolutely um so then big picture if you're telling people about the book like what what are some of the other names that you deal with in the book um so i kind of moved through pop culture and so i have uh, like you said scooter uh braun and I have um, I do a chapter on Gordon Lish, who was Raymond Carver's editor, which is uh, kind of a crazy story about uh, him more or less rewriting Carver's stuff. Um, I moved through um, I moved through I do a little Kubrick chapter, which you know is kind of uh, might sound confusing, but uh, you know kind of focusing on the way he worked with uh, with Tom Cruise and some of these big stars um, to to explain how you know this mild mannered person was able to to get what he wanted totally um, and then I have a uh, have a chapter about a, a woman uh, known as narco mommy she was a, a member of a drug cartel in Tijuana and the way that she basically came to power was you know four or five of her brothers were either imprisoned or killed uh, and 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 uh, and then she turns out she was helping to run the cartel um, in, in kind of a behind the scenes wow. way the whole time and she was officially like kind of more their accountant um, but it kind of came to light after all these guys were were basically going down that she had a lot of influence the whole time which is yeah which is really crazy um, and then uh, yeah I moved forward through some political uh, voices so I have some some Trump world figures kind of talk about Kushner and and Bannon and they're kind of examples of, you know, you'd think that they were pulling strings, but it increasingly looks like uh, that is not the case at all. Um, <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, I kind of get to Dugan and, and uh, go to Russia. And I, in the book, I go back to St. Petersburg and kind of end it, wrap it up with a uh, little bit on the trail of the real Rasputin. Yeah, that's that's really cool. I mean, that's you mentioned Bannon and Kushner. Like, I wonder, I think half the skill of these Rasputin type figures is cultivating that air of mystery and the sense yeah. that they do have all that influence, whether that's true or not. Yeah, that's what's fun. It's like half debunking uh, their, you know, the persona they're trying to put forth and half trying to figure out, like, uh, how much of it is real. Well, yeah, altogether, I mean, it's comprehensive and, um, and just really fascinating, all the different corners that you touch with this book. Um, and so people Thank should you. check it out. Uh, I am very impressed with all the, how, how long did it take to pull all this together? Um, it was about, I think a, a year of reporting and then I was writing kind of on and off through then. And then, um, maybe another half a year of, uh, of, uh, of other additional stuff. Uh, book publishing is so weird, you know, uh, it's not like writing, uh, that I'm used to where, you know, you have that immediate, uh, gratification. You have to wait so long for stuff to come out, which is crazy. Yeah, um, I bet. It's good to know. <laughs> yeah, well, and here you go. I mean, it comes out uh, yeah. on Tuesday. You made it. You're on the promo tour here. Right. Uh, <laughs> so last question, unrelated to the book. You've been living in London, correct? Yes. Yeah, so yeah just the uh, last three months. Have you been able to follow the NBA? Are You're a Celtics fan, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's been uh, tough. Uh, you know, there's there are various streams that are accessible online, which is always good. But it's just more the switching your your um, your sleep habits around. Right. Um, so I've been able to ca I've definitely watched less games than I ever have. But uh, with the playoffs coming around, I'm going to uh, recommit myself, uh, figure out exactly what I need to do, and just I guess probably just sleep a lot less. But I'm gonna I'm gonna make sure I do that. Yeah, we're all gonna sleep a lot less over the next few months. <laughs> uh, how, how are you feeling also, about this? As Celtics? a Celtics fan, oh sorry, <laughs> just... no, hit me hit me with your Celtics take. 
My only my only take is 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 a very bad one. Paul Pierce is right. He is better than Dwayne Wade. Oh, thank you, <laughs> thank you so much. You know, I'm sure that I'm going to end up I'm podcasting with Ben for the first half of this podcast later today, and I'm sure it will be brought up. But I think that okay, people good. were being incredibly obnoxious to Paul Pierce. I'm not yes. on his side, but the internet needs to fucking chill out. Okay, Paul, <laughs> Paul Pierce was really good. And I like that every basketball player thinks they are better than other basketball players. Yes, that's one of the yeah, things absolutely. that makes the sport great. So, um, but yeah, man, thanks for coming on. And uh, the book is a great read, and uh, everybody should check it out. So, awesome! Thank you so much, and it's so fun. All right, man. Good luck. I will talk to you soon. All right. Take care.